0: Let's look at Nehemiah chapter (coughs) 2, verses 1 through 8. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. And if you just got here, let me say this. Nehemiah is an ordinary man that God has used to do an extraordinary thing. He took this guy who was not trained in any way, but he was strategically positioned to be the cupbearer to the king. And he used him to build a wall that protected Jerusalem and allowed the temple to be rebuilt to get God's people back online with him. And last week we saw Nehemiah pray in response to some really bad news that he got, and here we're going to see the plan that emerges from Nehemiah's prayer. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king couple things to pay attention to there. The month of Nisan, first thing to know is that this is a marker, that this is actual, factual history. This is not historical narrative, it is not conjecture, it is not made up, it is true history. And Nehemiah is sharing somewhat of his journal here, and he is reminding everyone this is when this happened. Second thing to know here is that this would have been (coughs) about three or four months after the news of Jerusalem's disrepair, had reached Nehemiah. And this is profound because it means that Nehemiah's been sitting on this really bad news for about three or four months. And in the midst of that, he gets to the point where it seems that he just can't take it anymore. And he has to speak up. And look at this. It says, when wine was before him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. So he's doing his job there as the cupbearer, but watch this. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing that you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now this sadness idea here, we might think about this, this is no big deal, he's got emotions like everybody else, he's not a robot, but the fact that he is revealing sadness in the king's presence was literally taking his life in his own hands. Because at this time, this king's court was a good vibes only destination, You did not show sadness. You did not show anything other than happiness because the king would take it as a personal affront and potentially think that you were disloyal. In fact, there's another piece of uh, historical information from the treasury reliefs of Persephylus that indicate anyone who came into the king's presence (coughs) did so with such great deference that they would actually place their right hand over their mouth so that they wouldn't even defile the king with their breath. Now, that is crazy. So you couldn't be sad, you couldn't have stinky breath, you couldn't have any breath, because you didn't even want to get it on the king. And so when Nehemiah says, (coughs) in the next verse, then I was very much afraid, you can understand why. Because he understood that he was literally taking his life in his hands. But look what he says, he says, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So first point today, in the midst of all this, his four months of prayer, his taking this chance, now he speaks, Nehemiah displays outstanding wisdom and emotional intelligence. He displays outstanding wisdom <coughs> and emotional intelligence. Now let's break it down. This phrase here, let the king live forever. He was not simply trying to suck up to the king. Remember, one of his greatest <coughs> fears as a king was disloyalty. So for him to say, let the king live forever, is he's saying basically, listen, I'm with you, I'm for you, I'm on your side, I've got your back, I've got your wine. I'm keeping you safe, but I need to talk to you. And what he says there, (coughs) Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, even that is significant and strategic? Because every king was also obsessed with his legacy. He was obsessed with who came before him, (coughs) who came after him, so on and so forth. And so for Nehemiah to frame it this way shows that he knew what to say, when to say it, and how to say it to get the best possible result. It reminds me so much of what we see in the Proverbs. Evil words destroy one's friends. Wise discernment rescues the godly. Proverbs twenty fifteen: Wise speech is rarer and more valuable than gold and rubies. One more, Proverbs 21, 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. And that's exactly what (coughs) Nehemiah did. Now here's the question for us. Do we have that kind of wisdom? Do we have that kind of emotional intelligence? It's what we would all want. It's what we all should aspire to. But if you're like me, eh, it depends how much sleep we've had, how much coffee some of us have had, how the, how the weather feels outside, but this is what we want. And I think there's a couple of <coughs> practical things that we can do that can help us move in the right direction regarding this. The first one is, I think we need to get to know the Proverbs. This is as simple as just opening up your phone and Googling Proverbs about speech. Because the Holy Spirit uses those words to shape us, to change us, to give us wisdom, to give us insight, to help us have what another proverb says, which is apples of gold and settings of silver. That we have the right word at the right time in the right situation. Proverbs will help us follow Nehemiah's example. Now, beyond that, second thing <coughs> practice the pause the pause and you know who I learned this from I learned this from Ray Orland you guys know we have a long good history together Emmanuel is the mother church of this church plant and I remember him talking to me one time after a meeting and he would just kind of mentor me just I'd get these little gold nuggets sometimes we'd go out to lunch and he had heard me answer a question in a meeting and I I think he was thinking you could have probably done better than that and you know what he was right And he said, you know, here's one thing I've learned to do. Somebody asked me something hard. Somebody asked me something complex. I will take it in, and I will take two or three seconds, form my thoughts, and then I will speak. And I started thinking about all the times that I've had conversations with Ray, and there were times that I would ask him something, and there would be such a long pause that I would wonder if he'd actually heard what I said. And then I began to understand, no, he's doing this on purpose. And so part of the reason and the way that he's able to drop the gospel truth bombs that help all of us is because he does this. And those of you who know, Ray, you know what I'm talking about. There's that pause and then there's that Gandalf wisdom that just rolls out of his mouth. Friends, that's how Nehemiah was in this moment. That's how I want to be. And I bet that's how you want to be, too. So get to know the Proverbs. Practice the pause. And the third thing, I'll just give it to you for the next verse. Look at this. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Second point, Nehemiah also gives us a powerful example of prayer throughout the entire book. Now, last week we saw it. the long prayer, the thoughtful prayer, the laden with scripture prayer, and here we get the, I'm in this tough situation, flash prayer. Both of them matter. And this characteristic of Nehemiah, it comes up throughout the book. And he is so quick to pray. And friends, that is an example that we need to lay hold of. Before you step into a meeting, Before you step into a conversation with your spouse, with your children, with your extended family, anything that you have any sense that it could even get a little bit sideways, it is always a good idea to, in the midst of that pause, while you're collecting your thoughts, multitask and pray at the same time. And let me tell you something, the Lord (coughs) loves to answer those prayers. He will help you. Because if you were praying, Lord, give me wisdom, Lord, help me, help me not uh, defame your name, embarrass the gospel in this moment, why would he not answer those prayers? You know he will. And when it doesn't go exactly the way that you want it to go, well, there's grace for that. But I'm telling you, if we follow Nehemiah's example and we press into prayer in those moments, I guarantee you it will go better. Let me give you just one little reminder here of God's heart toward us in answering our prayers. Jesus says this in Matthew 7, For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one to whom it knocks will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asked for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asked for fish, would give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him. Friends, God stands ready to answer our prayers. Let's take full advantage of the access that we have to Him through Christ Jesus, and let's do exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. Let's boldly go before the throne of grace with confidence, (coughs) knowing that God is going to answer our prayers. Now the final thing I want to point out to us here, last three verses. I want to give you the principle up front, make sure we don't miss it. I want you to notice both the clarity and the boldness in Nehemiah's request. Verse 5, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now, notice the repetition there about the father's graves. Again, it's the strategic positioning of how he wants to talk about this. It's possible that he's even omitting the word Jerusalem on purpose because he knows that could create some cognitive disconnect or cognitive dissonance, rather, for uh, for the king. But again, he emphasizes this of the father's graves. And the king said to me, verse six: the queen sitting beside him. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Now, this is very interesting here. Because we don't get the answer right here in this moment. It doesn't say exactly how long he told him. But here's what we know from later in the book he was gone for 12 years. 12. As in 10 plus 2, 12. And I want you to think, let's just do a little hypothetical here. I want you to imagine you go into your boss you walk in and you say sir or madam hey i've got a few things i need to take care of got some stuff going on need a little time off okay the conversation begins he or she is amicable oh you're a good employee happy to help how long are you going to need and you come back with 12 years i'm just going to have this prophetic word and tell you how that's going to end that conversation is going to be short and that conversation is going to end with him saying well, when you go, don't let the door hit you on the way out and don't bother coming back. Nobody asks for 12 years off unless God is involved. Unless God is involved. And guess what? God is involved in this story. And if we didn't believe it already... Let's break this down a little further. In verse 2, verse 3, Nehemiah is afraid that if he comes out with the truth, it's going to be off with his head. Verse 6, he's asking for 12 years off. Verse 7, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So now not only is he asking for time off, he's asking for protection because he knows that the people that he's going to have to go to get through to get to where he needs to go to do what God has called him to do, they're not big fans of what he is doing. In fact, some historic, uh, uh, historians believe that the exact same people that he's going to have to go have this you know, get-out-of-jail-free card with are the people that convinced Artaxerxes to not participate in rebuilding Jerusalem in the first place. So you talk about boldness, and you talk about audacity, and the other thing you talk about here, you talk about specificity. And We talked a little bit about this last week, I'm a a huge fan of all types of prayers. But I'm a particular fan of very specific prayers. Because when you ask for very specific things, I mean, listen, we believe in the sovereignty of God here. We know God's got stuff going on that we're never going to understand. We we we're big on that. But when you ask for very specific things and then God does them, I'm telling you, that's good stuff. I'm telling you that strengthens your faith. It strengthens the faith of those around you in your community. Uh, if the unbelieving world is paying attention, they're going to have some questions. To posit against their atheism or agnosticism, that if they're intellectually honest, they're gonna have to try to figure out how you needed exactly this, and then somehow exactly that happened. And that doesn't happen when you just put something out into the universe and hope that it comes back to you. That happens when God is involved. And, friends, that's what the story of Nehemiah is about. It is about the involvement of God with this ordinary man doing an extraordinary thing and just answering these crazy prayers. So he asked for this, and guess what? He gives it to him. And that's not all. Look at verse 8. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy." Now at this point, I just start to laugh. Okay, so he's asked for 12 years off, and he's asked for uh, you know letters of transit in the Casablanca sense, for those of you guys who've seen that movie. And now he's saying, and I need uh, some of the best wood that you have from your private reserve, and I'm also gonna need a house. You know, I mean, can you imagine that? The boldness, the audacity, the courage for him to do this. And then at the end of verse 8, we understand why. It says, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. Now, if you're one of those people that feels comfortable writing in your Bible... You need to underline that phrase. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Because if you can't remember anything else about the book of Nehemiah, you need to remember that. Because that explains it all. The only way this story makes sense, the only way Nehemiah accomplishes this unbelievable task <coughs> that he's going to accomplish is because of that verse. It's because God was with him. And I want to give you some really good news this morning in the midst of the awful news in which we are all living. If you were in Christ today, and what I mean by that is if you've come to the place in your life when you recognize you cannot save yourself, that only Jesus can save you, and your whole hope is in his perfect life, his substitute's death, and his glorious resurrection and you've transferred the leadership of your life over to Him, if if that is what you believe and that's how you're living, the good hand of God is upon you. It is upon you. It is upon you in a positional sense. And in a positional sense, God cannot love you any more than He does right now. And He will not love you any less than He does right now. And He knows about all of the difficulty and the struggles and the gargantuan failures in your life this week. And still in the midst of that, the good hand of God is upon you. He knows your weakness. He knows your frailty. He knows your doubt. He knows your fear. And the good hand of God is still upon you. Friends, that's our hope. That's our only hope in life and in death. That the good hand of God is upon us in a positional sense. And we also want the good hand of God upon us in a practical sense. That means that we want to get this positional, practical, that every single part of our lives we want to constantly be bringing under the lordship of Jesus. That means part of the reason why we pray before we step into those meetings like Nehemiah did isn't simply because we don't want to get fired. It's because we want to advance the name and fame of Jesus. We want that positional to become practical. Part of the reason we need to look at all of the money and resources and real estate and cars and other things that the Lord has put in our lives, the reason we want to steward those is because they don't belong to us. They belong to God. And we want to get that positional identity practical. We want the good hand of God on every aspect of our lives. Part of the reason why we took so long praying this summer and why we continue to pray uh, this this fall and, and we just keep praying is because we want the good hand of God on our church. And man, listen, I get it. This season that we have all been in, It's probably been the longest, most discouraging season of life and ministry I've ever had, ever. And if you know some of our history, that's saying a lot. And yet in the midst of that, the good hand of God is still on us. And so we pray and we persevere. And let me give you one kind of little side note that I didn't mention earlier about Nehemiah and his prayers. He prayed for four months before he said anything. And I think for us as, you know, Westerners, that's hard, man. Because everything we want pretty much now, we just open up our phone and somebody brings it to us. It's like magic. And you can get it from everybody. It used to just be Amazon. Nope. Target will bring it to you. DoorDash will bring it to you. Grubhub will bring it to you. And I think that same kind of must-have-it-now-ness, it bleeds into our spirituality. And we expect, I prayed, I want it. And that just doesn't happen sometimes. Because sometimes, like Nehemiah, you pray for four months, and sometimes... You pray, and God says no, because he's doing something else that we don't even understand. And listen, I get the weight and the difficulty of that. But I also get that when you have a positional good hand of God upon you, and you are seeking to have the practical good hand of God upon you, he will give you grace to persevere in the mess that exists between those two friends this pandemic season has made all of our lives kind of a mess some of us are better than others about kind of washing it over a little bit some of us have actually done better than others in the midst of it Some churches are better covering it up than others. Some churches have done better than others. But this whole season is a mess. But let me tell you something. If the good hand of God is upon you as an individual, and the good hand of God is upon you as a church, then God will give you grace to persevere whatever comes down the pike. And let me tell you something, friends. We need that. We need it now, we're gonna need it in the future. Our Afghani brothers and sisters right now in this moment need it. Our brothers and sisters in Haiti right now in this moment need it. But because we know what we just learned from Matthew seven, God is willing to give it. And because of what we've learned in this passage, you take a guy who is afraid for his life in verse two, who is asking for the moon, In verses 7 and 8, because the good hand of God is upon it. Now let's wrap all this up. Where's Jesus in all this? Well, really, he's everywhere. But I want to point out just a couple of places that I see him. (coughs) I think one of them is in how Nehemiah handles... The situation. It reminds me so much of how Jesus handled situations. I think about all those times that he squared off against the Pharisees and they were always a little bit different. Sometimes he just kept on teaching and seemed to ignore them. Sometimes he directly engaged them and called them out. Sometimes he answered their questions with a question, but he always knew what to do. And then you think about the story where his good friend, Lazarus, dies. Shortest verse in the Bible may have one of the biggest meanings. Jesus wept. He he stayed away. He allowed him to die so that he could bring him back to life. That doesn't make sense to us. But it makes sense to Jesus. Jesus. If you see and know everything and you uphold the world by the word of your power. What about that time that somebody came to him and they said, my daughter is sick and and then the daughter dies. And Jesus walks up and he says, she's just sleeping. And they laugh him to scorn. But Jesus knew. He knew how to handle that situation. He knows how to handle all situations. And some of us this morning, the situation that you need Jesus to handle is this. You don't yet know him. You may have a lot of information and factoids about Jesus, but you're not in a personal relationship with him just yet. Friends, today you can if you will admit that you're a sinner, if you will believe in Jesus, if you will confess your sins to Him and commit your life to Him, He will save you. And today can be the day of salvation for you. In just a moment, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but you take Christ. And then let's talk about that. You just pray a simple prayer, ask God to save you, and we want to help you on that journey. Now for those who've already made that turn, Knowing that Nehemiah knew how to handle this situation and knowing that everything we learn about Nehemiah points us to everything we love about Jesus and knowing that Jesus knows every situation, what situation do you need Jesus to handle in your life today? Where are you afraid of getting your head cut off? Where do you need the faith To ask for what only God can do. Friends, whatever situation that weighs you down the most, the Lord is with you in the midst of it. The Lord is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you would think or imagine in the midst of that very situation. So let's take some time now and let's pray about it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come this morning and first of all, we thank you for inspiring this word. We pray that you would help us. We pray that we would respond to it accordingly. We pray that you would let us see what only you can do. the only explanation for what we see in the story today is the good hand of God upon this man we have that we want that lord make it real in our lives in this season (coughs) lord for those who feel particularly weighed down and discouraged and even despondent i pray that you would Let us see what only you can do. Remind us of the good news of the gospel and the hope that is ours in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name.